0: jordan when i lived in israel went uh just hiked to, to pet you heard petra yeah, yeah famous. so yeah, I
1: indiana jones the last crusade that's right
0: exactly it's pretty cool it's pretty nuts to see the temple of isis open up it's, it's awesome but when i went to the horror of the old of the archaeological remains you could pay like ten dollars for this amazing you can buffet not in, in petra in yeah. but not in the no it's not like it literally like, well because it was just city.
1: it was destroyed at the end of the movie <laughs> that part was... a I'm huge just city. No,
0: no, it's that part. You can't actually go inside there. Yeah, because like, it was destroyed. Because exactly. they tried to cross the street Because they fucking the took the Holy Grail with them. Right, obviously. And no. so I went deep inside. Like, Oh, this bread was incredible. I think most people would say, don't eat this, Mike. Like, it's... You know yeah. what I mean? I'm like, yeah, it looks so good. Look at that custard. So I was like, I'm going to do it. 36 hours later, came Yom Kippur, and it was a day of judgment. It was a day of reckoning. It was awful. It was horrible. I mean, it was... It was awful. First thing, you know, first I got a high fever of about 102. Like, I, I, I remember just waking I was like, I don't feel great. And all of a sudden, you're, you're sweating, you're in bed. And like, that's, I had my Newfoundland puppy at the time. Like, I was like, fuck, I gotta take her outside. And it was awful. And then by like 8 o'clock at night, the fever broke and then came on the stomach pain. Like, it just lasts for a week. Yeah. It was a good diet. I lost probably like 9 or 10 pounds. But it's just like, you can't do anything. Like, yeah. you have to live near your toilet.
1: Yep. Well yeah, I came here. I fought through the day. It was That's impressive. Yeah, I didn't know the, but yeah.
2: gave that presentation even more. Gave a presentation. Wow. The
1: writing presentation. It was a decent that's presentation why too. Yeah, Monday? Is that where you sat? That's why I sat down. Okay,
2: what well, I was wondering, I was like, Oh, usually I think James comes and walk around, around, around It like like a works. professorial luck while doing that. No, it
0: worked really
1: well. <laughs> that's why I sat down. <laughs> wow. Yeah.
2: Alright, well now that we talked about food poisoning. This is a writing podcast from three people here at Digital Surgeons. I'm Jason Rose, a content strategist, and I'm joined by James Dowd, one of our creative directors, and Mike Sim, who's a creative strategist.
1: Were you recording the
2: conversation about food poisoning? The entire one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make sure I work in the violent I, I just events. want my story
1: to be told. <laughs>
2: yes. Mine, too. <laughs> Especially Mike's great line about the day of reckoning. <laughs> yes, it was... Uh... So admittedly, this podcast hasn't been completely fully thought out. But essentially, the basis of it is the three of us are constantly talking about what drew us into writing and the kind of tools and techniques that we use to you know, really do our roles here and how to write in our own kind of unique ways. Interesting thing being we, we all three couldn't be more on the same page and disagree on more shit at the same time. So this podcast is really an open forum to, dis- to bring these discussions and disagreements and conversations that we have about writing and hope that they apply to other writers that are out there. So how do you guys want to start this off? What's the, what do we think is the first big topic that we want to tackle? One we can
0: talk about is tension, the importance of tension when you write an article or write a story. How important is that? And what do we even mean by tension?
2: All right, Jason. Mike, so before you even keep going farther, I think you've got to establish your perspective that you're going to be speaking from. So what's your background in a tweet length?
0: I'm a cl- I am got a PhD in classics from Yale University, and I'm trained in ancient Greek and Latin literature. All right, so what does that make you believe about tension? I think that tension is everywhere in a story, but you can also have a lot of pieces of micro tension, meaning you don't need to lead with tension right away. I think that you can be patient with it. How do you like that? I threw that down. (laughs) The gauntlet. I threw down the
2: gauntlet. I want Jason to respond. Okay. So, this is a common, common disagreement that we have here, which is why Mike, of course, went right for my heart (laughs) with the knife. So it's my fundamental belief that as human beings, we are binary in how we perceive the world. We look at something, and for the most part, it either makes us feel extremely positive or extremely negative. And I believe that all a story is, is, a, is being able to bring those emotional feelings out of people by shaping stories so that they occasionally meet positive feelings towards it, negative feelings, and that that distance between the way things are and the way we'd like them to be is the really central thing that we relate to in any single story. So I think that no one will care Unless you first set a tension point and give them a reason to relate to the character that's in the story.
1: Wait, can you say that again? So binary, yes. we are one we're ones or zero? And zeros. We're okay. either
2: happy or we're not okay. happy. So we
1: are one or the other. Yep, fundamentally. Right, yep. okay. So in between doesn't matter because we're one or one or zero, right? We I'll are play, one I'll, or zero. I'll play along We're with one that. or yeah, zero. Yeah, we're one or zero. So we are we're happy or sad, let's say, in that scenario. We are emotionally connected to a point, a binary point. Yeah. And so what you're saying is there's a line in between that is tension of the stretching of emotion. So would you say that we are connected to a point and then through conflict, obstacle, tension, the stretching of emotion, that emotion is pulled it's expanded on it's threatened to it's threatened to be taken away or threatened to be built upon would you agree to that
2: i mean i guess so it doesn't really so, do. how does that disagree with so what if you I agree said, with though? it yeah. then
1: the first thing is not tension the first thing is emotional connection
2: but i believe that we only we only have an emotional connection when we relate to the struggle that every human being has to be at a one all the time you know what i mean like we consistently struggle we get upset so i'm it.
1: only at one because of two Like, I'm only at one because of what's going to happen in the future. No, no.
2: My argument is that we – I love the David Foster Wallace quote. I'm sure this is the first of many insufferable David Foster Wallace quotes that I'm going to say throughout (laughs) the recording of this podcast. But he wrote that great great essay on Franz Kafka and said that the reason people – Americans don't get that or that reason college students don't get that. It's this whole great essay about that. But there's this line in it that the big joke in Kafka is that the impossible journey towards home is our home. And most people don't acknowledge that. And that's what I fundamentally believe, that human existence is trying to, it's this impossible journey towards home, that we're always trying to strive towards something and achieve something. And only once we realize that it's the journey towards home that is life. You never actually reach home. So I think stories are the same kind of thing that we all in our day-to-day life say, we have this vision of the way we want things around us to be and we try to get there and it, we never actually get there and stories essentially mimic that struggle by going between zero and ones we're always trying to go towards one we occasionally feel like we got there we have that really really high day we kiss the girl we got the job promotion the boss pat us on our back whatever it is and we have that one and we feel like you know what this is great so if we're talking about a boy meets girl story the boy gets oh, the girl but then, of course, the next day we come into work and the same boss kicks our ass. The girl cheated on us with one of our friends. Don't, don't exhaust
1: all your literary references. this <laughs> <really>. <laughs> Just... but,
2: So anyway, Mike, What before, <laughs> no, I, no. before I keep pontificating excessively well no, no, right. So what you're basically saying is you feel like the, the struggle is in and of itself
0: often the thing that matters most. There often is necessarily whatever you achieve, it's ephemeral. It's not going
2: to be there forever. It's just a struggle. Yep. And we recognize that struggle in a story. And that's why we care about a story no matter what's going on. That's why we watch uh, a fantasy about someone trying to slay a dragon. We have a connection to it. We'd have never, I've never slayed a dragon, but I like watching, or I've never, I'll use a better example because I don't
1: really like watching. See, fantasy but that's, we don't start the movie at the slaying of the dragon. So you are a James Bond movie, right? No. No. You are, wait, wait. You're a James <laughs> Bond movie. And so the great movies are the ones that say, here's a character, and now. Here's a difficult situation they're in, and because you now connect with the character, you feel the obstacles, you feel the tension points. And what you're saying is, I you are an '80s action movie that starts in with a big scene that doesn't really matter, but it's fun. Well, no, that's fun, I would disagree
2: right? completely with that because you're you have much less subtle, t- more. I mean a. You like things that lack subtlety a lot more than I do, right? You, I love James Bond movies. You love John James Bond. I hate James Bond movies. You love Burn Notice. I hate Burn Notice. I like I like really slow movies that take a while to develop because I like things that draw out that binary struggle. Right,
0: but you like, but you do like to front your tension, though, right? Especially when it comes to your writing, I notice, and you're really good at it. But I know you love to take the tension point, whatever it is, and you kind of just throw the reader into it within the first five to six lines. Yeah, because right?
2: you have to give them reason to care, right?
0: But you just oh. said, you just said.
1: You give you, give, you, Wait, you, you just said, have an emotional connection. No,
2: you give him tension early to give him a No, but you care. just said that you like. But you said you're also open to slow, to slowly evolving
0: stories, right? Yeah. So so let's, well, let's give me
2: like. So let's use a hypothetical first scene of a movie. There's a, a dad sitting at the breakfast table and. All his kids are around him, and everyone's smiling. And
1: that's an emotional connection because you can relate to the scene. No,
2: and the wife's happy, and yeah, relate to the scene. She, it's
1: happy. She comes. I remember around, that moment when I had with my dad. And but then, she comes around with pancakes, and she
2: yep. she flops them on the table. Happy memory. And everyone smiles. She gets the syrup out, and it's it's not the Aunt jemima it's the special syrup that they got in some. You know, you notice it's some special Obstacle? thing from this is,
1: Yeah, this is the point of tension. Well, no, not the point yeah. of
2: tension yet. Yeah. Let me finish. Let me finish. So she brings out the syrup, and there's this. They have this beautiful dinner, and he kisses his youngest daughter on the forehead, and heads off. to work and that's the first scene of the movie does he die next no but say let's say that's the first scene of the movie now alternatively what if as he's walking out the door you see a text come up and he picks it up and there's a nude picture or something there's some scandalous text from a mistress or something what makes a more compelling first scene of a movie if you set this tension, people love antiheroes for this very same reason. No, they like but people you that can't. Have, you
1: can't have him. You can have him take his phone out and have a nudie text. If at first you didn't set him up as the like perfect father and family man.
2: Obviously, it's more compel- It'd be more compelling if half the movie you know, that text doesn't come and then suddenly that text comes. But all that's doing is letting the zero linger longer before you go to the one. I'm not saying you have to go from zero to one right away. I'm saying you have to set the zero, and you care really once the one is set. And that's what hooks you into a movie. If a movie's all zero, all sad, you're going to be like, what the hell's going on here? There's no emotional art to this. If it's all one, you're not going to care either. That's like a Holocaust movie. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> I can say when I'm Jewish. <laughs> and I have
0: My, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. Nothing non-PC there.
1: <laughs> and I'll make them because I don't care. <laughs> so
2: essentially, we're really not disagreeing, because I, I will concede to the point that uh, movies often start on one and linger on one for a very long time. I think
1: after a year of fighting over this, he's finally giving in to us. <laughs> I'm not giving in. I'm just he conceding is.
2: that you don't have to set the tension point with zero and one right away. You can demonstrate what zero looks like and then give someone one. You can show what one looks like and then give them zero later. You don't have to necessarily...
1: He agrees with us.
2: But I think I think that setting the tension... Is extremely important, and that good movies, even when they're setting the one, obviously they foreshadow important. the yeah. zero in certain ways, and they certain. somehow they somehow show you that there's essentially going to be a flip side to this. Because if you really just sat there and someone's a perfect model citizen and they go off to work and they do a good job and they come home and sleep at night, that's a movie nobody wants to watch. Someone, oh,
1: absolutely. I'm not saying there's no point yeah. in tension. I'm just saying stories don't lead with tension.
0: All right. To give, if I may, sort of to bolster James' point a bit. Did you ever, have either you ever seen the movie The Deer Hunter? No. Have you seen The Deer I Hunter? I love The Deer Hunter. It's a great movie.
1: Yeah. And the thing
0: with The fir- the Deer Hunter, it's a famous uh, movie about the Vietnam War with Robert De Niro, Christopher Walken. I think Christopher Walken got best uh, supporting actor for yeah, it. Yeah, the one out. with the Russian roulette. Right. Yeah. But for the first, I think, 45 minutes to an hour of the movie, it takes place, I believe, in an industrial town in Pennsylvania. Yep, steel town. The steel town, right? And there's nothing... It doesn't really have anything to do with the rest of the plot of the movie. In fact, I go as far as to say, you can take it... As far as the plot of the movie goes... You could reduce that first 45 minutes to three or five minutes but it's all about forming an emotional bond well with I the would people disagree
2: no I would disagree that completely I think there is tension from the very very first scene of that but movie. then it, like the Vietnam War is not introduced like you know there's but the that movie that is not about the Vietnam War though well
0: it's about the effect of it is about the effect of what this war does to the to the but it's primarily about.
2: The, but it's no. It's about the relationships between the characters and motion, how Robert De Niro and Christopher Walken have this very complicated relationship in the first forty-five movie minutes during that wedding scene. It's not a happy wedding scene. It's very sad. They're kind of all stuck in this dead-end steel job type thing, and they're desperately looking to make something out of their life. De Niro's hunting that. De- it's there's tons of tension. in them. The movie, literally starts with, <laughs> the movie literally starts with a deer hunting scene where he's slowly stalking a deer, and there's tension whether he kills it or not.
0: The, for forty-five minutes, The
2: 45, first 45 minutes set up this tension between these friends, and they're doing a lot of passive-aggressive things to each other at this wedding, but they're also really, really close. It perfectly sets up that tension between you have these friends, you have these childhood friends that you are forming this relationship with, and there's also weird tensions. And then suddenly they're dropped in the Vietnam War together, and all these tensions get magnified. Christopher Walken completely loses it. De Niro doesn't know if he can be a good friend to him or not. They come back. De Niro... There's just... That, that's a bad example. That yeah. movie is so ripe for tension. <laughs> oh, wait, wait. <laughs> also... <laughs>
1: Also, With I'll Donald say... This.
0: Dren, Drew ramming your argument down our throats I'll also say this
1: we are still early in our bourbon and usually you and I are like much deeper when we have this fight uh, so I actually feel a little bit of a need to connect agree with you yeah. and that also remember I wouldn't fucking care I haven't seen that movie but hunting a deer and you're like there's so much tension I would be sitting there going alright get it, get it over with
0: I, that's, that's why I had to agree okay maybe I'm a bit shallow yeah. like, i right, I'd just be just, like, like I wouldn't care like, I don't, like, are you, you gonna, know, gonna kill the deer or you not we'll
1: think yeah. let's be, get thanks. the credits over <laughs> Thank Let's you. get to the movie Thank you, when we can find out what the fuck this is about.
2: I love that scene.
1: It's I so, so, shot. I so love just this beautiful right. so, so to him some there people, so, so to some people, there's some emotionless tension of, oh my god, is he gonna get the deer? Why do I care? I don't know, but I'm hooked.
2: Well, see, I'm a film snob, <laughs> James is not. <laughs> no, I got hooked. And, I got
0: hooked an hour into it when we're actually in Vietnam. And you have this really intense action for the first four or five minutes. It's mostly about trying to bond with the characters. Just like I didn't feel, I guess see, I didn't feel tension.
2: I watched that movie at the perfectly right oh, time because it was run i was right out of college and i was stuck in this this kind of like same hometown bullshit with the friends that i had from high school and it's just like i loved the first 45 minutes of that movie also like you this. don't have
1: heart you don't like things with heart yeah i am I like blessed. things you with know, heart so i like so he remembers he remembers obstacles he remembers yeah. plot line i remember the emotions that the characters felt and shared yeah, yeah james is a slave so, to pathos i am i am well, i give me an example though like like that's why the TV we don't agree on TV shows because I like things like Chuck because they all love each other. They go through <laughs> they go through tough situations, but they love each other and they're best friends and it's so it's so cute yeah. and emotional. And I love it and I love them. Uh, and then he watches things like Mad Men, which just depresses the fuck out of me and I don't ever want to see it. But he has I some logic. I
0: hated,
2: hated Mad Men.
0: Yeah, I was. not. I did not
2: think there was much tension. No, I didn't no, think, uh, Mad Men's a bad example, because I didn't okay. love that Mad Men. Bur- my favorite show of all time is The Wire. Did you like The Wire? He hates The Wire. Love The Wire. Exactly. Thank
0: love you. Love The Wire. It's a great show. About the inner city in Baltimore. It's a great show. <laughs> it
2: doesn't it matter. It was, it.
1: it was the most boring show I've ever seen.
0: How could you say it was bo-
2: It was uh. terrible.
0: <laughs>
2: Mike, are you coming to my side here? Is this what I'm hearing? I didn't ask, I'm,
0: I'm a nuanced gray character. Sometimes I'm over there, sometimes I'm here.
2: All right, James, since since Mike kind of introduced his background a little bit, why don't you introduce your background a little bit and then take us into our uh, next talking point?
1: What is our next talking point? We'll, we'll figure it out. Storytelling <laughs> techniques.
2: Storytelling <laughs> techniques. Well, what about speech writing? You love, you love speech writing. Would you like uh, to talk about some rhetorical rhetorical uh, devices in some of your favorite speeches?
1: Yeah, I think that's actually a perfect setup for Zim just to rant.
2: <laughs> He's going through his notes. The professor yeah. is ready. I notes. <laughs>
1: Did you give yourself a introduction of who you are and what you do?
2: No, but I uh, can right now. I was going to give you the chance to do it first. I just assume everyone automatically knows who I am by the sound of my voice. <laughs> I'm Jason Rose, a content strategist here, and um, my background kind of has been interesting. I went to undergrad for um, for business and uh, finance, actually, but just never really could get into the, to finance. Um, I did it because my my dad was in finance, and it just seemed like the thing to do, but I just always had this itch to get back into to Welcome writing. to
1: the Jason Rose podcast. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is going to be, you guys can go get a drink or something and come back in a half an hour or so. <laughs> so I went back and got a master's Radio in journalism. therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Just love me, Daddy. <laughs> so,
1: um, I uh, I went back. So got he got a master's, a master's in journalism, master's in journalism, uh, and journalism. then didn't get a job in journalism and was at a stupid job that he hated and felt closed in on, and he quit and he came here and he said, "I'll start from the very bottom." He started from the bottom, worked his way up.
2: Yep, the end the end i was a recruiter and the only job i ever got anyone was my own job here
0: that's a great description in fact jason used to describe oh yeah uh, now you, oh, yeah, like you can do mine
2: you can do
1: mine go, no, no, it's actually go. Better.
0: no it's more interesting it sounds a bit more narcissistic
2: james was a tv writer turned copywriter um he's worked his way around you know agencies down in north carolina up in connecticut now he's creative director here at uh, digital surgeons what did i leave out you're, you're Hick uh, growing up in Virginia. I feel like that's an important thing to, to get in here.
1: No, you nailed it.
2: <laughs> Speech writing is something that we all really share a passion for. And in Professor Zim's case, it's the great speeches that, you know, roused ancient battles and ancient civilization. 100%. In my case, it's an obsession with the Kennedys and Ted Sorensen's writing for JFK and for RFK. James, you love, you know, Winston Churchill and kind of the great World War II speeches. So it's really a very common thread that we all, we all really care about, and I think it's something really important to talk about because, for better or worse, good speech writing has a lot in common with web writing now. It, that it gets to the point very quickly, it communicates ideas clearly, it uses things like repetition to really get points across. And in fact, that's something that kind of Trump has used to great effect in his tweets with these very speech like, emphatic exclamations at the end of it and making things very digestible and easy for people to understand. They, you know, it, it sounds better than it reads.
0: I agree. I think that one of the big mistakes people make in general writing is they say that we view repetition as a fault, something to be avoided. But that's really not true. I think a lot of great oratory, which often translates into great writing, Involves a repetition, right? I think of Churchill's, we shall fight on the land, we shall fight in the sea. He repeats, we shall, we shall. That's what makes it so memorable. Uh, If you look in the King James Version of the Bible, there's a famous uh, rhetorical passage in the book of Genesis where it's right before, I think, God des- destroys a city. Neither of us, I think, are particularly religious, but the King James Version of the Bible is a masterpiece of literature, full disclosure. And um, at least I'm not religious. I can't speak for either of them. That's
2: why they named it after me. <laughs> Hunter S. Thompson always said the same thing about the King James Bible, that it was like one of the hardest hitting.
0: It's a massive, it's one of the greatest, yeah. uh, it's one of the greatest things to ever come out of a committee in, hu- in the history of humanity. Uh, 48 people came <laughs> together. <the> our, great...
1: <laughs> our listeners just went up. <laughs> no,
0: it's, it's, an, it's a masterpiece of literature, but there's a famous uh, part in the King James Bi- Version of the Bible. And all the men that wrote it were the great rhetoricians of their day. So rhetoric is just infused throughout the King James Version of the Bible, but... It's when I think God's about to destroy the city of Sodom, and Abraham goes before God, and not before God, he speaks to God, and he says, well, what if I find, if I shall find 50 good men, will you spare the city? And God says, if you find 50 good men in the city, I'll spare them. God, if I shall find 40 good men in the city, will you spare them? If you find 40 good men, I shall spare the city of Sodom. If I find 30 good men, and so on and so forth, till eventually they get below 10, and there aren't 10 good people in the city of Sodom, So he wipes it out. He commits genocide. It's a great example of repetition, the power of it. Uh, I think a lot of rhetoric is it's about repetition of words, repetition of phrases, using words in different ways. Um, if you look at the Gaysburg Address, which I say is one of the three great speeches certainly in American history. Can
1: you recite it
0: word for word? No. I should. It's only three it's only three or four paragraphs. That's but the main What
1: did Yale teach you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> but the main verb that he uses again and again is dedicate. And he uses dedicate in different ways. He uses it active, passive. He constantly plays around with the verb dedicate throughout that entire speech, and that's, that's the most common word. So rhetoric is often, I think, about not using—it's not about trying to sound—I talk about this a lot of work. Uh, don't aim to impress, aim to express. I think that's what great rhetoric does, and it also involves simple words. Monosyllabic words will get you a lot farther than polysyllabic, complicated phrases. And I think all of us here aim to be communicators. It's one of the things we do at Digital Surgeons, both on our, for ourselves and for our clients— so one, of the, I think that's just one of the things that really stands out to me. with Great rhetoric. Any thoughts, James? Yeah, <laughs> I think you're about to take this from me. So. No.
2: You look like you're about to. <laughs> no, I was saying I don't know how to follow that. <laughs> so it's so funny because before I before we set this podcast up, I um I went to kind of look into Ted Sorensen's speech writing techniques a little bit just to just so I could you know articulate well what I like so much about them, and um, I found this passage from a, a book he wrote before he died. He kind of summed up some of the things that he thinks makes a good speech in this one kind of passage, and it's so funny that how much of what he said makes great speech writing echoes exactly what you just said, Zim. So one of the first things he says is, We are not conscious of following the elaborate techniques later ascribed. Neither of us had any special training in composition, linguistics, or semantics. Our chief thing that we always measured against, and again I'm paraphrasing, was always comprehension and comfort. So short speeches, short clauses, short words, series of points or prepositions in logical sequence when appropriate, and really just constructing sentences, phrases, and paragraphs to simplify, clarify, and emphasize. So, of course, the test of a text was not how it looked to the eye, but how it sounded to the ear. So the best paragraphs when read aloud had a cadence to them. So then in order to give it a cadence, he was a big fan of rhyming, a big fan of alliteration, a big fan of um, just using alliteration to not only sound nice, but to reinforce their recollection of reasoning. He says, you know, we started sentences with and and but all the time. If it sounded better, we went right to and or but. Frequently used dashes. Didn't believe in using commas, parentheses, or semicolons, but de- just dashes to really simplify the delivery. Disliked uh, being verbose. Uh, let's see here. There's a couple other really good things. Oh, a really interesting thing: parallel construction and use of contrast. Really, really big. And you know, love that. Uh, I like
1: all that, but I like being verbose. Yeah, you. I don't like verbose. short sentences. Yeah,
2: <laughs> well, that's more of the Churchillian style of speechwriting, right? He, he could definitely be. I'm going he, more he off be the Aaron Sorkin
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, school of speech writing, I think. No, no, I think
0: there's nothing, there's nothing I agree with. Also, great speeches involve long sentences. There's nothing I think that's abs- a lot of great rhetoric involves long sentences. The, if you look at a lot of the great speakers in history, I think Cicero, the, the Roman rhetorician, was the master of this. He was famous for being the, the king of the periodic sentence, which is the one you like verbose, long, complicated sentences that could be as long as a paragraph. But the key to the way he also uses a lot of variatio, variation in the way he spoke. So he'll give you a short sentence, maybe a two-line sentence, then a three-line sentence, a four-line sentence, and he doesn't want to exhaust his listener. Then he'll go back to a short sentence. So it's about using them, but use it skillfully. He realized like you can't give an entire speech of just long sentences, otherwise you'll bore the reader. So another way of
2: maintaining their interest, regardless of what you're saying just vary up the length of your sentences. This is going to sound really pretendous what I'm about to say but when you do that well when you really vary the rhythm between sentences it's almost like, like a, a jazz solo, right? It's like you, you build tension with a long <laughs> sentence and you kind of do a couple really short quick ones you come back to long ones it gives it a really nice rhythm and kind of this like forward-moving tension to it. I feel like that
0: sounded really good. Why do you have to
2: preface that with this is going to sound really pretentious? Because I like, can't well, say, what? I is was, was going to say, yeah, that sounds like three out of like a New Yorker magazine. Like yeah. <laughs> I love the New Yorker, by great. the way. But <laughs> it's just like, yeah, because for all those
1: jazz musicians <laughs> out there listening,
2: I compare my writing to Coltrane.
1: Yeah, it was pretentious.
0: And another thing, you mentioned uh, the use of prepositions. And well, I'm sorry, wasn't it sp- the reader you were talking about? Uh, Ted Soroson, he was the speechwriter for JFK. For JFK. And RFK. For RFK. Uh, you mentioned prepositions there, like one of the most famous quotes from Abraham Lincoln's at the ed- end of the Gettysburg Address a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. I think just the use of those prepositions, is what really makes those three clauses stand out there. So, it's just another example, like using simple you know 10 of the most common words in the english language you can make a really
2: powerful point based on the way they're arranged i listened to the to the gettysburg Address not that long ago and it remains one of the most incredible pieces of writing not to get political here but it was incredibly upsetting to listen to the gettysburg <laughs> and Dress. also pretentious again yes <laughs>
0: clearly jason's revealed where he stood on which side during the civil war <laughs>
2: big big statement i know
0: big statement
2: he will never get elected in a southern state today. Well, it was the day after our most recent inaugural that I listened to. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> that was where the Depression stemmed from. Interestingly, like, a lot of great rhetoric is
0: about imitation.
2: The Gettysburg
0: Address, people don't know this, Lincoln, his education was based primarily on reading. He read a lot of great speeches, and he read the King James Version of the Bible. That's where a lot of his education came from. He just memorized long passages of prose and of, and of poetry as well. But he based the Gettysburg Address on another famous speech that took place during the Civil War, Pericles' funeral oration delivered in 430 during the Peloponnesian War, when Pericles, a great statesman who led Athens early on in the war, honored the Athenian war dead during this War of Sparta. So Lincoln was very much inspired by that speech. And if you compare the two speeches, you'll see that Lincoln kind of takes a lot of the themes and almost the same lines from Pericles' funeral oration delivered in 430 BC and just re- and plays with them and repackages them for his audience. How much
2: of good writing do you think is is stealing like that? A lot, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that art James, in general. Is there anything wrong with imitation?
1: Wait, you said stealing. He said imitation. Yeah, tomato,
2: tomato.
0: No, there's. A, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> we
2: well, as Mike it's this woman. <laughs> said, like <laughs> a tra- <laughs> said like a true copyright infringement. <laughs> Do either of you um, read your writing out loud to kind of hear if there's a rhythm to it or if it, to catch mistakes?
1: So I just gave that presentation about the value of reading it out loud and how it helps you understand your style, how it helps you find the bumps in the in the writing, the cadence. I have never read my writing <laughs> outlined my entire life and i made that a point yesterday i actually referenced it more times than i intended to and how valuable it was and how it's going to change people's lives and change their writing moving forward and i've never done it once
0: we definitely will edit this out from the podcast for <laughs> yeah. else no the
1: no it's true I, but i i don't i don't but i think it helps people i think it can help people i think there's great writers <laughs> who have done it, we've talked, Hunter S. Thompson was into it, Uh, do you do it? I I do,
2: but I didn't want to say that after you said great writers, Hunter S. Thompson did it, then have me lean into the mic and go, "Uh, I do as well.
1: Great writers like Hunter S. Thompson, what's another one, Uh, Jason Rose, Mike Zim, do you?
0: Not that much, I don't do it that much, no I should, but anyway, if I do give a speech, if I'm thinking about writing it out, I will practice it to see how it sounds.
1: I've never done that either. I, I prefer to write something if I'm giving a speech, like you just said. Write something and then just totally riff and try to remember what I wrote, and that's my speech. What I'm about to say is
2: highly embarrassing. Which is
1: why I've never been hired to give a speech. <laughs>
2: <laughs> when I write something here, I don't read it out loud. I'll read it kind of out loud to myself. Like, I'll very deliberately read it in a way that I almost am just saying it out loud in my head instead of just kind of, like, going word to word quickly and processing it. But when I'm writing something at home, much to my... Uh, my fiancé pretends she enjoys this. I'm not sure whether she actually does. It's, this is one of those things, if I ever got on a polygraph, I would say, I make her come in and sit down, and I'll read it out loud to her just to see her reaction and see where the beats are and see where it sounds good. And it's this, every single time I write something at home, and then I kind of, like, pompously walk around after, like, like a mic drop kind of thing and feel like I have to go smoke <laughs> a cigarette.
1: <laughs> Ooh. Read something out loud right now.
2: I should read something out loud right now. Yes. So am I writing? <laughs> yes. All right. Can we talk about something else while I pull something up?
1: We can always pause the podcast while you pull something up.
2: <laughs> and pause. <laughs> oh, I got, I got one. I know what I'll read out loud. This was the one of the more uh, over the top over-the-top leads that I ever wrote for uh, for an article. Live Person Blog asked us back in May of last year to write an article about digital transformation. At the time, I was seeing a lot of stuff around, you know, every every consulting agency was putting out this digital transformation white paper, and they were all framing it, framing it very, very exaggerated and very, very dramatic. So, um, you know, Pete gave them all that, put all these great thoughts down as to, how, um, you know, the five steps that you need to do to keep digital transformation tech powered, but human led. And that's the name of the article. And I tried to write a lead that I thought would make it interesting, but I couldn't help myself that it was almost a passive aggressive dig at how exaggerated. Every other person was making it, so I decided to make it even more exaggerated. And uh, this this is the lead. Legacy, analog, organizations are scared, and for a good reason. After all, a meteor of rapid digital change is barreling towards them, threatening to destroy everything that they've built. This meteor, at least as I imagine it, is ridden by Elon Musk and carries the weight of each and every digital disruptor in the industry, powered by exponential advancements in tech. These disruptors are building products unencumbered by existing business models that are designed with only one goal in mind to provide unforgettable experiences that live where the modern consumer expects them to, whether that's in their pocket or purse, a pop-up shop within a VR helmet, or some proto combination of all of the above. Modern businesses need to be in a constant state of digital transformation to adapt, upgrade, and compete in an ever-changing, connected landscape. But fear not, organizational stakeholder, because it is not technological advancement that wins the digital transformation arms race. It's an understanding of your consumer. True digital transformation lies at the intersection of human psychology and tech, where the experience of your customer is all that matters. What will save organizations from this hyperbolic digital doomsday I described is <laughs> an understanding that technology at its best enhances human capability. It doesn't replace it. Below, I've outlined the five crucial steps to drive a tech-powered, human-led transformation.
1: I know all of our styles so much, and I know we talk about it so much, but still I was sitting here thinking, man, we all write very differently.
0: <laughs> yeah, did that sound very different? So, James, you've read enough of my stuff and Jason's. I'm curious to do because, yes – uh, James Dow has a very distinct style of writing. In fact, even today, I saw a piece of copy, and I mean, said, "That's James. James Dow wrote that." And sure enough, I slacked him, and it was his. Do you feel like J- Jason and I have very distinct styles?
1: Uh, I don't. Th- I didn't think I had a distinct style.
2: He has a very distinct style. Very. I always describe it as Walt Whitman-esque. It just, it's straight dead poets, Walt Whitman, which is fantastic. And you, yeah. I can't it. write
1: like that. I can't do it that well. I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> no, but I just think I. <laughs> I, I write, I think, long but choppy. Does that make sense?
2: I wouldn't call it no. choppy. It's got it's long, but it has rhythm to it. So a lot of people, when they write run-on sentences, it becomes this jarbled mess. Run-on sentences? How dare you, sir! Yeah, it sounds very. <laughs> it sounds like, meaningless. You're just. You're like. I this is a mess of words. But you were able to write very, very, as you said, verbosely, but also give it a lot of rhythm. So I give rhythm by. Periods, you know, dashes, a lot of stops, a lot of tension. Like, but using phrases like that, you do it in a very, very distinct way. With isn't that exactly what I do? But you do it in a very, very different way than I. It's much more poetic, a lot more commas. So you have a very
1: like structure. You have like a professional style. I feel like mine is in a lot of ways childish. Like it's like emotional. It's like whiny.
2: But I think that's why it's like
1: it's different because <laughs> it is a lot more most people don't use a style that's whiny. I, most people you,
2: don't use an emotional style like you do and that's why I think your writing is more distinct than mine is.
1: If I may... <laughs> what is this? No, I'm going to read. Uh, it has like a, a search result a which is me.
0: <laughs> that's for yeah, for James. So I'd say that James's style is very, uh, it's not raw in the sense of unpolished, but it's very raw and that it just sort of comes out of what he's thinking. And I would like to just read for you one sentence that he just sort of shot over to me. I thought it was awesome, and I'm really impressed that apparently that was his first draft. So I'd be curious to know what would happened. Well, there's, and I, mis-
1: there's mistakes in it. No,
0: no, there's not. What are you, mistakes? It's great. It's, no, I disagree. This is a quote from James. Will over skill. We have skill, every one of us. But skill alone doesn't matter. It's the grit. The fire in us, the desire, and the capacity to act decisively and deliberately. And it's not something that can be taught. It's a resilience and the ability to adapt and overcome hardship. And it's up to you to find it within yourself. That will be the secret to grow into something great. All of us finding our grit, our will to succeed against all cost. I think that's fantastic. That's very raw. I like, there's as Jason said, there's very much of a rhythm there. So we have skill. Use skill a couple of times. Several times. Uh, grit, that appears. I say that's sort of the overarching theme that particular passage, and then he sort of closes it, the end of this loop, with grit at the very end. He begins by saying, or close to the beginning, it's the grit, the fire in us, and at the end, all of us find our grit, our will to succeed against all costs. So we have will at the beginning, will at the end. In Greek, they call this a ring composition. So a ring composition is where you begin with one concept, and you sort of think in terms of outer concentric shells. So layer one, then you go to layer two, layer three, then the next one will be layer three, layer two, then layer one. So here we begin with skill and it ends with skill. Layer two, we get grit and we also have grit right there before.
1: No, none of this is factual. What? <laughs> none of this is factual whatsoever. No. There's not this much in, in this. Okay,
0: Jason, tell me, <laughs> read this. Well, I just, There's not. I just describe it, read it. It's yeah. completely.
1: De- no. And, and Rose, we talked about this the other day. is – I hate everything I write. And so my style is is to write hard. Just throw it out there the and then never look school? at it again. where most people edit and make it like professional and fix the mistakes. And I go with the people get that I feel this. You know, like they'll get it. Well there's a lot And of, I
2: never touch it again. You also use a ton of you're not giving yourself credit for all the rhetorical techniques yeah, that are in this. So there's also yeah, go. I'm gonna say it wrong. C H I A S,
1: chiasma, chiasmus, floating yes. opposite. There's tons
2: of chiasmus in this, the whole entire thing. Will no, no. Still, we have skill, every one of us, but skill alone yeah. doesn't matter. That's chi- chiasmus. Chiasmus. chiasmus,
0: chiasmus, It's like the Greek letter chi. It's an X. So you sort of <laughs> you flip around. That's all. It comes from the Greek letter chi. X. See, so pretty much X.
2: what's happened since uh, since Zim start started is essentially. I have a smarter echo in the office that repeats things that I've just said to him but back in a more intelligent way. And then I go to the rest of the agency and I explain things as Zim explained them to me and sound smarter in the process. <laughs> I,
0: all I do is I give a word towards James will describe something. There's a word for that. I'm not – that's all I – mean, what, he, what he describes in four or five words, like, oh, there's one word that describes it. So it's not, I'm not teaching him anything new there.
1: Well, we also have – I mean, you have a master's. I only have a bachelor's. And Rose. That makes you smarter than both of us. Well, he helps he both of us. Well, you, so you kids, <laughs> but Rose, so we know things that we don't actually know what it means. So we have used rhetorical techniques, sure, in our writing, mm-hmm. but we've referenced them and the Greek or Latin words for them. And I know for a fact we've pronounced them wrong. And I know for a fact we pronounced them wrong because I've heard now Zim talk about him, And I'm like, I know exactly what you're talking about. And then I make a note. You said it wrong, you idiot. The single best thing that um,
2: James taught me. So when I first started, I was really lacking tons of confidence in my writing. I, you know, I, I, I knew I was a decent writer in my journalism program and I'd gotten nice feedback from teachers. But I really came in being like, I don't really know anything about marketing. I don't know anything about marketing writing. And, um, you know, James really taught me to to take confidence in your writing, but most importantly, to defend it.
1: Look me in the eyes while you say this. All right, I'll say, <laughs>
2: <laughs> stare real deep. James taught me that um, to defend your writing at all costs. So if there's a word in your back pocket that you haven't probably heard since seventh grade, you know. Oh, I English. remember
1: when we had this conversation. Yeah, we were drinking margaritas. Yeah. So what was the word?
2: I, I don't remember. Oh, I
1: remember what the word was. What was it? The. The. Yeah. How did we end up to be? I don't remember this. Someone challenged me about the usage of the word the in a specific sentence, and I fought it so hard. And I gave this huge background on why it was valuable and important and necessary, and they backed down. And then you went, really? And I was like, oh, I don't fucking know. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I made that up. But I remember this. Yeah. And I,
2: I I was so blown away by that that I took that perspective from here on forth that I don't care if... You know what? The honest thing is, uh, when I write something, all anyone can do is they write it because they think it sounds good for what they're writing. You know, you can use highfalutin terms or you can say it uses these techniques. And maybe smarter people than I use those techniques and use them knowingly they're doing it. But for me, I write what I think sounds good. but. If someone starts challenging me on the choices I made, I'm going to reach in my back pocket. And I'm going to start bullshitting and pull out as many rhetorical <laughs> techniques as I can. Yeah. I'm going to find parallel parallelism that may or may not be
1: there. I'm going to find repetition that may or may not be there. <laughs> I know who said it. I know who challenged me. I know where that thought is exactly. I know where it exists on the internet. Uh, and the reason I ultimately is because it kind of fucked with the cadence a little. If you took it out, it, it ruined the poetry, yeah. the music of it. And I was not down for that. <laughs> Jessica, a lot of people I feel like there's those that are uh,
0: they're trained rhetoricians or trained writers, and a lot of others that are great writers, but they're not necessarily trained. They just do it. You know, I think that, for example, that ring composition cycle, like Homer uses it all the time. I don't think Homer's saying to himself, Oh, look at me, like I'm gonna use a ring composition. He just did it. Like so I don't think there's anything to say that's not what I did, like putting putting a phrase behind it. It helps with the academic study and possibly like making yourself more self-conscious with the usage. But a lot of people just use these rhetorical techniques or these literary figures of speech without ever saying this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, they just do it.
2: It's like, um, like I don't think Keith Richards sits there with his Telecaster and thinks about music theory when he does, no. does the hammer-on and start me up. He just – had his guitar in open G one day and hammered on. I was like, Oh, that sounds cool. Now I'm going to do that in every single song. You know, it's just, this like, you just kind of stumble on the stuff that you know works and you're smart enough and you have the taste to hear what works in your head. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of stamp and repeat and you figure out your own little flavor and your own way of structuring that works.
1: Oh. I don't know. As you know, I'm obsessed with Aaron Sorkin and on the like 20th viewing of West wing, I'm seeing even more stuff and I already love him. And I think he's even more of a genius this round. It's unbelievable what he he was doing a script for that show every week plus he was doing sports night early on and the brilliance of that show the humor balanced with the drama he has to have I mean Zim you have to speak to the like divine or like the classical like muse the daemon like stuff like that the genius living in the walls of his you know apartment while he's doing cocaine whatever it is because it's not human to be able to write like he has written
0: we talk about the about the slot here. I talked to James and Jason about that inspiration. A great writing. It's not like something I do all the time. Or like my best stuff. It usually just comes to me at certain times of the day. Maybe it's a five o'clock in the morning, so I'll get up and do it. it might be at eleven o'clock at night. But whenever I feel a, a burst of writing inspiration, I have to do it because it's not going to be there an hour later. It's not. So the Greeks and Romans had this idea that of the muse. And this was a divine concept. There was a, there were nine muses. Each of them represent a different form of inspiration. And if you look at the beginning of the Homeric epics, that is the Iliad and the Odyssey, they begin with what they call the invocation to the muse. So Homer, who was the poet who wrote this work, doesn't say I wrote this. Muse, sing through me, sing to me. So he attributes all of the content ultimately to this out of body experience, and that it can't be done without the muse. And that every time the poet recites, he needs the music, he or she, if it's a female poet, will need the muse's help to once again be able to produce for their audience. So they believe that inspiration was something that came outside the body. And not that it just came from outside, but it was a divine godlike. So you can see why the Greeks would worship this, that they create a cult. Homer had his own cult in antiquity. There were those that worshipped him as being a divine figure. And for those of us that like writing, you can sort of appreciate why that is.
1: Right, And didn't it go beyond that all the way to the Renaissance, ultimately, with the the painters? They were, it was the divine Michelangelo. Didn't they, they hold that title?
0: They did, but at that point you have Catholicism, right? So no one's actually – like, the Greeks and Romans, like, they, the Greeks really worshipped. Like, they would divinize these, these poets. A lot of the great poets had their own cults, minor cults in, in Greece. Like, they really – we often use divine metaphorically, I think especially in the, Middle, in the Renaissance, like you can't worship a poet, otherwise that'd be a form of heresy. But the Greeks had no problem with doing it. The Greeks are divinizing different aspects, elements of nature all the time.
2: Well, how different is that from people mobbing the beetles? I guess the difference is sacrifice,
0: right? Cult sacrifice. So no one's like, no one's killing animals. I mean, that's one difference, I suppose. But you're right. No, we humans have this tendency to divinize something that's, it's very spiritual I mean the entire notion in the Middle Ages of saint of worship what's a saint right the, the notion of saint worship is really just uh, it's a transformation of the notion in the ancient world of worshipping heroes because heroes had actual they had cult sites they were worshipped locally well what's a saint right I mean basically when you see the way in the Middle Ages people would worship saints is that, they would say that we're not actually worshipping them as gods but they kind of are right the, the notion of a saint relic I'm going to make a pilgrimage to the site of a saint somewhere in Spain, somewhere in Italy. And then you're only paying money to that monastery or whatnot. So I think just to go back to your point, yeah, the way we worship the Beatles, we use it metaphorically. But you can see very, very easily there's a thin line there. And if that taboo wasn't there, we probably would. No, we probably would worship them. And once the last of the Beatles is dead, they'd have a hero cult. Sacrifice a priest of John Lennon, a priest of Paul McCartney. It would be an endowed priesthood, and there would be money involved.
2: Do you think they would do a sacrifice for Ringo, or they would just be like, yeah? Exactly. That's, that would <laughs> be a debate. Or,
0: or the Ringo cult would be the, the poorest earner. like More successful cults earn more money. His wouldn't make as much money.
1: We were, gonna, we were talking about uh, storytelling and how you and I argue all the time. I have another argument.
2: Oh, I was going to say favorite short story first, no. but we can move on. No, to I where. can jump. Yeah, we can jump.
1: I have an argument you and I have had. Ooh. And we did not solve (laughs) and it was about Hemingway. It was about the iceberg theory. Oh, so we were taking the iceberg theory and we were applying it to storytelling in the sense of the fake Ogilvy, uh, blind person sign. Remember that, that the, the story goes that, and it's attributed to David Ogilvy, ad man, which apparently it, it was not him. It was a Frenchman of some sort. Uh, that he stopped at a blind person, a blind homeless person on the street who had a cardboard sign, was collecting money, and said, "Was I'm blind?" And that's all it said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they didn't have any money. And he pulled out a marker and he wrote on it. And suddenly the person, the guy, just has tons of money. And he wrote whatever he wrote. That that should look it up because well, it was good. Whatever. But yeah. what we argued was what was a better thing for him to write, yeah. and. We both disagreed the iceberg theory, the idea that there's underlying things. And if you give someone something, they will fill in the rest of the story themselves in their own mind, and they will tell themselves the story. They will be driven to a cause. They will be driven to an action based off the story they tell themselves. And so I think what I said was it said, it's a beautiful day, and I'm blind. Wasn't that what it is? So
2: what the sign originally read was, I am blind, please help. And his donation cup was empty. empty. And what Ogilvy changed it to was, it is spring and
1: I am blind. And I said, it's a beautiful day and I'm blind. Please help, right? And because I want the idea that someone, an emotional connection, oh, it is a beautiful day, right? It's a beautiful day. I love this. It's warm sun, beautiful, beautiful sky, birds flying through the air and that you now see oh now here's the tension now there's a pull on my emotion he can't see that he doesn't have this feeling now i want to give him money and you challenged me hard you, you had remember, a whole other take on
2: it do you it. remember what my challenge was i'm trying to remember to be honest with you and we, now, went, I was we went we went being a contrarian <laughs>
1: yeah we went into like whiteboard session for like an hour on this and we sketched out why like what kind of effect this would have on a person so clearly i was right You were just challenging me. But I was, was I, was
2: I saying that it was better, it is spring and I am blind, the way he wrote it?
1: No, you had a whole different take on it.
2: (laughs) I'm trying to remember what my argument was. Well, okay,
1: then what would you, how would you rewrite it right now? How would you craft that story? Play the Jeopardy music here. (laughs) I mean, it is
2: spring and I am blind, I mean, to me, and the perspective I'm reading from it now is just about as good as it gets because you're not you're not you're not insisting that you're not telling the reader how to feel about it is spring you're just putting that out there it's spring and
0: doesn't TSLA have a really dark line about a really dark line about spring Uh, spring is the cruelest of all months
2: and I think that's exactly where I was going with it that you're not that the person can interpret that one way or the other it is spring. Oh, spring sucks. I hate that it rains all the time.
1: You didn't, you're didn't. you not referencing alive. TSLA. I wasn't going to
2: reference TSLA, but that's the point I was making. <laughs> Don't steal from the PhD
1: from Yale. Well, see, that's what I said. This is the beautiful... You, you masters from Quinnipiac. Well, this is a beautiful echo. This is a beautiful echo because
2: this is exactly... This is what I'm talking about, that I, I'm making a point very ineloquently. Zim <laughs> gets what I'm going to before I actually say it. Says it more intelligently, and then now I will what? just repeat that to other people. And just to build on that
0: a bit, I think TSLA it's engaging with the beginning of Chaucer's canterbury tales because the canterbury tales begin with this praise of spring yeah the spring is the greatest of all months so that's like uh is like spring fucking sucks well yeah and
2: that's the that's what i think is interesting about it, is uh, spring and i am wait blind. did
1: TSL say spring fucking sucks <laughs> Can we, it's up,
2: uh, spring is like...
1: it just doesn't sound like him <laughs> Here's when he wrote the
0: first
2: draft spring, <laughs> s- spring fucking sucks and at the end of spring you will appreciate winter for the first you'll, time yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wait, you'll know the, spring for the first you'll time you'll know spring for the first time <laughs> well, the, the wasteland are, okay. well that's, that's what I was getting at by saying uh. it is spring people can say, believe one way or the other about it they can say oh I love winter and now it's spring and it sucks and I'm blind or now and- it's spring everything is getting better and I'm blind and I can't enjoy it so it works for both audiences April is the cruelest the cruellest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land. That's the opening. Uh,
1: I see it, but I just—I feel like a, It's pretty clear that I win this argument. I don't even know what we're arguing. What you about? What? <laughs> we spent an hour on a whiteboard discussing this and mapping it out. <laughs> Clearly, you're you're just trying to fight me. <laughs>
2: Well, I, I, wrote, I actually
1: have I, have, I think I have photos of the board <laughs> and where we rated our lines of copy <laughs> that were on a homeless person's sign. <laughs> well, can I say I love arguing with you?
2: <laughs> I have a feeling that's what the argument was, is I was saying that I am spring is more ambiguous. And you were trying to put more pathos into it by saying it's a beautiful day and have an emotional connection. And I wanted to put tension right away by saying it's spring and you're not know how you don't know how you feel about spring.
1: Nice <laughs> cover. It.
2: That's exactly. I think that's exactly what we we're arguing about. It fits in the narratives of what we always argue about. You're making it up as you go along. I thought I already prefaced this earlier in the podcast that you taught me how to argue pretty much without without prethinking.
1: That's true. Endlessly. So never like you argument. I feel
2: like this is like a Dr. Jekyll Frankenstein kind of or not. I did, I mean, <laughs> movie idea. Dr. Frankenstein and Frankenstein kind of thing that you created the Wait. monster that could argue about anything and then get made when that Frankenstein argues with you. I think this is going just as planned. <laughs> what was the um, what was the heart of writing that you and I arrived at the
1: other day about the uh, about self pleasure? I forget how that started. Oh God, no, no, don't make me remember. I, it was in writing. We were talking online, so I want you to actually pull up the entire conversation and just go for it. All right, I will. It's loading
2: up right now. So this was this occurred on. Um, on Slack. To that. All right, I'll, I'll read it. I'll, I got it away. All right. This was the conversation. So, James Dowd, 1030 a.m.
1: I'm basically pleasuring myself. I'm basically
2: pleasuring myself rereading something I wrote. Check out this line. When someone runs into the fire, he is bowed to, but not necessarily followed. Sacrifice does not inspire more sacrifice. It inspires reverence, and reverence alone will not inspire growth. You said growth. That line. It's a good yeah. line. Jason Rose, 1031 a.m. LOL. I like to think self-pleasure is a defining characteristic of anything I write. All that starts with a C, Mike. C-H-A. How do I chiasmus? say that? All that chiasmus. All that. Chi- chiasmus. All that. Ch- chiasmus. You've been spending too much time with Zim. <laughs> James Dowd, 1034 AM. Writing is torture. Good writing is masturbation. <laughs>
0: These are great quotes. Why are you, We should put this out
1: there on the internet. Because this is what our conversations are.
2: Amateurs wait for inspiration. The rest of us show up and masturbate. <laughs> <laughs> James Dowd, 1035 AM. This conversation should be reused for the podcast. <laughs> that was a great exchange. Thank you, Mike. Yes. Oh, thank both of you. I appreciate that. One last pour of bourbon for everybody? I'm all right. Yes. One more then? I think that's what I heard, Sam, right? I think we should talk a little about the shapes of stories.
0: Do oh, you want to talk stories. about that? Why don't you tell us? So well, let me little preface here. Jason wrote how many blog, one or two blog posts on stories? Oh, That's it was some, like it was like six. I'm glad you read six. them all. Okay, he wrote, <laughs> I, think I, followed that. Uh, I was like one or two, six. Glad you read them all. Like you read one, you've read them all. Um, <laughs> you really have. No, uh, uh, James wrote a series of a blog post on DS.com about. About how short how stories are shaped, about how what marketers can really learn from reading these great some of these great fairy tales, and
2: he drew on I think uh, Kurt Vonnegut. is that correct? Well, it, t- drew on is a little bit generous. I, uh, I uh, directly you wrote stole it, it. Yeah,
1: and Kurt Vonnegut stole it from you, is that right? <laughs> yeah. yeah,
2: I I went took a time machine. I went back. <laughs> I invented the shapes of stories. Yes. Vonnegut overheard me talking about it. Yes. Proceeded to tell everyone about it before I had the chance to. Share yes. it myself.
1: Yes. Yes. All this is accurate.
2: So um, I I was trolling the depths of... No, no, actually, I wasn't trolling the depths of YouTube. This was uh, one of my Masters of Journalism classes. It was um, a radio class with an NPR producer named Lori Mack, and she shared the Kurt Vonnegut um, YouTube video about him talking about the shapes of stories. Essentially, when... Kurt Vonnegut was getting a graduate degree in anthropological studies. He wanted to write his thesis about these common shapes that he noticed all throughout different stories. And he wanted to more or less track the stories that civilization holds dear and then learn something about that civilization based on the kind of stories that they, they like. So, for example, um, an easy example is the Cinderella story shape. So someone starts at the bottom. They gradually get up. They gradually go up. They gradually go up. They gradually go up. Gradually go up. Clock strikes midnight. Everything gets terrible, but wait, something great happens, and then everything's wonderful now. So he noticed that there was this Cinderella shape that all these modern stories were being created around, and people loved them. And then said, "Wait, the Bible is written the same way. Jesus starts from nothing; he's born in a manger. He gets, you know, he does miracles. Things get better and better and better. But wait, no, the Romans kill him. Everything seems terrible. Why well, didn't say the Jews? Yes, yeah. <laughs> I'm not Thank Mel you, Jason. Gibson. I'm not Mel Gibson. I know." <laughs> Mel Gibson will never be a guest in our
0: podcast, <laughs> right? He probably punched Jesus if we just said.
2: So Jesus dies, but wait, he comes back and everything's wonderful. The slipper fits, whatever the ending that that gets put on it. <laughs> Essentially, he plotted that shape and then he started realizing other story shapes that he found, like man in the hole, uh, boy meets girl. So man in the hole, man start situation, everything's kind of average. Situation gets terrible. Man gets out of it. So Die Hard starts off. He's kind of had a blah day. He's going to visit his ex-wife in L.A. He doesn't know how to feel about it. Negatory enter Plaza. Yeah. Enter Hans Gruber. It ends, and his wife feels you know marginally better about him because he saved Holly by killing you know ten German thugs. I think by the third movie, Holly still has left him, right? Yeah. Well, Holly yeah. leaves him at the he start of more or less every every yeah. subsequent. <laughs> So ungrateful. (laughs) (laughs) You'd think solving someone from a hostage crisis would earn you, like, kind of infinite goodwill. At least
0: 30 or 40 years of, like, Uh,
2: Apparently not. So boy meets girl. Person starts on an average day. Things get immensely better because the boy meets the girl. The, you know, I'll be, you know, the boy meets the boy. The girl meets the girl. The girl meets the boy. I don't know. That was almost like, I was like reverse racism that I tried too hard to be politically correct. Sexism. Now I sound like a, now I sound like Rush Limbaugh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He wouldn't even try that hard. Come on, let's be serious.
2: So the boy meets the girl, things get infinitely better. Boy loses girl, they get worse. Boy gets the girl back, they get infinitely better. So that's, of course, any rom-com. Anyway, there's all these different story shapes. Those are kind of the biggest three is Man in the Hole, Boy Meets Girl, and Cinderella. And I wrote a series of blog posts just about these different stories and how, we can kind of use them to encourage how we communicate You know, every day. It doesn't have to be a, a grand movie or a big long story or it doesn't have to be you know something really thought out and drawn. You can apply these kind of story shapes to even simple conversations. So if, if I have a big project coming up and I'm communicating with my boss, if I use the, the man in the whole story shape or I use Boy Meets Girl or I use Cinderella, they're much more likely to think the work that I'm doing on that project is going to be successful than if I just blurt out Whatever the hell it is, and I guess an example to use is, say we, there's a project coming up and it has the likelihood to be incredibly successful, but it has a huge open risk. If you lead with that open risk, chances are the person is just going to tune out and go, "Geez, oh, I mean that sounds like really terrible." There's no too way too much
1: tension right from the start. <laughs> <laughs> you
2: need to begin with a little bit of an emotional, yeah, picture. like <laughs> just
1: like really like ease them in with just, "Hey, how you doing?" You know, just like a little heart.
2: So if you start with the, the huge daunting open risk, you're, you're front-loading it with negativity, and there's no way anyone feels like it could end positively. So I guess I just completely negated my whole entire argument before. Success! And that's fine. <laughs> that, that's perfectly fine. If you instead use the boy meets girl shape and you first talk about all the success that the project is going to have, you get the person really excited about the direction that this is going in. And then you talk about the open risk. So this is, of course, when the boy would lose the girl. Things get very negative for a while. But then you end the conversation with how you're going to solve for that open risk. So that's the the Jesus resurrection, the slippers on the foot, the boy gets the girl back. And then now things trend upward and the person kind of ends the email on a positive note thinking, oh, you know what? There's going to be ups, there's going to be down, Like there always is because we're binary ones and zeros but we're going to end on a one they're accounting for the zeros that are going to inevitably going to happen now that's a project that the boss is much more likely to buy into than if you had kind of shaped the email differently so I've kind of been uh beating my chest about this and really kind of talking about how these shapes that Kurt Vonnegut recognized when I mean, there's even been a recently um there was an analysis I think it was of the project Gutenberg um which is kind of it's this collection of Of short stories. I'm I'm not going to articulate this correctly because I forget exactly what the project is, but pretty much it's all these stories that these the society holds very dear. You know, old fairy tales, popular writing, whatever it is. It's this big project. And they ran this through this machine learning computer that could actually assign emotional triggers to the the writing and actually chart their writing according to Vonnegut's shapes. And they found that, you know, actually three of the stories that Vonnegut talked about are three of the most popular story types, especially the the Cinderella story types. So Cinderella, we're also looking at. You know, Rocky, Karate Kid. Any movie where someone starts at the bottom, they work their way to the top, everything seems like it's going to be terrible, but then it works out at the end. I even could argue that uh, teen comedies like American Pie are the Cinderella story shape. I mean, it's literally used everywhere. And uh, so that's that's my spiel about shapes of stories. And that's why I believe in them so much is just because once you see them and once you start recognizing them, you realize they're they're everywhere. That was a great defense of your blog post. Wow. Well done, Jason. <laughs> Thank
1: you, Sam. You didn't end it with, find my blog post at
2: blah, 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 dot com. <laughs> well, I'm assuming that once I started that very eloquent defense, that even before I reached the end, they that any listener, they paused the podcast. They probably didn't even listen to the rest of it. They just <laughs> immediately went to Digital Surgeons, Jason Rose, Shapes of Stories, and just, they're they're still reading them right now. We're speaking to nobody. Okay, well, anyone that has made it this far... Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We're really, we're still working out the kinks, but I have a hell of a good time talking to to Mike and James, and I hope you guys have, you know, an eighth of as much fun just listening to it as I do talking to these two guys. So this was our first pilot episode, and um, thanks for listening. Way better than I thought it was. I thought I, I thought I just shamed my whole entire family's name with what I just did.
0: That's probably the alcohol. It didn't
2: help either. Like. Well, it got progressively worse the drunker we got. Yes. <laughs>